and encourage you to turn in your copy of the word to Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> no longer is the book of Daniel going to be a fun time. Well, at least not fun in the way we describe it. We're not going to have fun stories. There's no lion's den in our future. There's no fiery furnace in our future. There's no interesting Nebuchadnezzar becoming a cow. We, we turn now to the part where many fear to tread. We turn now to the part where pastors suddenly stop. If you ever wonder why preaching series on Daniel goes six weeks, it's because there's chapter seven and nobody wants to go there. But we have to go because all this word is profitable. That's our conviction. So let's come and hear the word of God through Daniel. Let's receive it as pure, holy, inerrant, lovely. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read the whole of the chapter. Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and look, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And look, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raved up on one side. It had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. It was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and look, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and look, a fourth beast. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns and look, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And look, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery fire. Its wheels were fire, fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And if I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burnt, burnt with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions. And look, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. 
and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the four feasts, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. That's in the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon the hearing, the receiving, the believing of it. Let us pray. O God of might and power, all powerful, almighty, reveal to us your kingdom, your power, your glory. Show us, O ancient of days, the one like a son of man, that we may Rest in his rule. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that was certainly a vision. I think what's very instructive is to look at the very last verse, the very beginning of the sermon. The very last verse, the very beginning of the sermon. The very last verse says, Daniel, I was scared. All that vision, I was very, very, very scared. My color changed. You know, when your color changes, it means you're not feeling great. He's getting pale. He's scared. It's very important to note the reaction of Daniel is not our reaction. Our reaction, I think, by and large, at least, at least in the last hundred years of the American church, our reaction is to say, who are these beasts? What are they? Who are these horns? What are they? Who is his little horn? What is he or it, whatever it is? We proceed by a very rational analysis of trying to figure out what this thing is. Who is this beast? What is this horn? Whereas Daniel hears it, and his response is, I'm terrified. I think that's very instructive for us, because as I mentioned, the very first sermon on the, on the book of Daniel, 
we now come to the part of Daniel that's uh, cartoonish. The Bible gives us this book, Daniel. It gives us the book of Revelation. It gives us sections of Ezekiel. It gives us pictures that are like cartoons, pictures of what is to come. And one of the great dangers we have in reading these pictures is that we wish to press every single detail to satisfy our curiosity. Daniel's response is not the response of someone who needs his curiosity satisfied. Our attitude, instead, is Titus 1, verse 1. Why are we given truth? Why are we given these words? Truth is an order for godly living. These words are not here to satisfy our, some desire we may have to read the newspaper or to figure out which beast is this. This is not the point of the words. These things are given to us that we might be equipped for every good work. And uh, among us, even uh, um, among us tonight, there may be differences in details of interpretation. That is okay. My view on this is not the view, for example, of John Calvin. It's not the view of the early Protestants who had different views, by the way. But the critical question is, what is the overall application of Daniel chapter 7? We get a vision. We get its interpretation. And as we come, we come down from Daniel chapter 6. We come down from the lion's den. We are now in the arena of prophecy and vision. And as I mentioned, many folks do not read this. There are two types of people who look at the book of Daniel, the type of person who wants to satisfy every single curiosity and press every detail, and they obsess over it, and they get actually nothing out of it for their godly life. And the other person is the person who looks at the book of Daniel and only ever goes through the first six chapters because the last six don't seem to make any sense. And they don't get anything out of it either, but you and I are here because we need something out of it. So let's go through it. Let's look at it and see what we are to get from this vision. We begin in verse 1. We're told a timeline. We're told it's the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's important because it tells you this is not a chronological order. Daniel is not written in chronological sequence. The first six chapters are broadly, but not the rest. We're going back in time. And that tells us something very critical. We are getting here some of the same pictures from the first half of the book, but they are a little more specific. In fact, I'll just tell you right now, this vision in chapter 7 is very similar to the vision in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had of that great statue of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay mixed. It's very similar to what we have here with these four beasts. That's deliberate. The Bible often works in this way in the Old Testament. You know this if you read the first two chapters of Scripture. I cannot tell you how many folks I've talked to in the, in the university level who have said to me the Bible has two creation accounts, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And they're two different creations, and they're contradictory because chapter 1 seems to talk about this, and two seems to talk about this. And I just tell them, look, you're, you're not understanding how, how ancient people wrote. You're being very arrogant when you say that. These aren't contradictory creation accounts. It's the way 
Jews wrote, the way Hebrew narrative is written, just like with Daniel. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not two different creations. It's the same act of creation. You're just zooming in the camera lens on chapter 2 onto day 6, particularly the creation of human beings. That's the way that Jews wrote. So it is here. Daniel is given this vision of the four beasts to zoom in on history, not from man's view, but from God's view. Chapter 2 is man's view. Chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's view of history. A great statue, gold. This is history. This is life from God's heaven's angle. And so in the first year of Belshazzar, we see that Daniel has a vision. He has a dream. And he sees these four beasts. He sees these four beasts. Same four kingdoms as in Daniel chapter 2. But here we get God's view. Now, notably, if you remember the the vision in chapter 2, they were kingdoms. They were metal kingdoms. Here, what are they? Here, it's like Godzilla. Here, it's like those bad Japanese bee movies that have the bees fighting in the ocean of of Tokyo. And they're dueling. Here, they come out out of the water. and, And there's a lion and... There's a bear, and there's a leopard, and then there's a weird fourth beast, and they're all fighting. Isn't that instructive, by the way? Isn't that instructive that from God's point of view, the nations of the world are not mighty statues, but they're beasts? And there's something very important for us, that when God looks at the nations of the world, the empires of people, he does not see mighty statues, mighty works. He sees animal instinct. He sees beast. God views them as rampaging creatures. Let's look at verse 7. This is the fourth beast. Daniel says, I saw the fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It devours. It's scary. You see, the key to interpreting prophecy, the key to interpret visions like this, is to focus on the big overall picture, not the tiny details. So, for example, the bear in verse 5 has three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Why does it have three ribs in its mouth? I don't know. I don't think there's really anything important there besides saying the bear attacks and kills things, just like nations attack and destroy one another. I don't think there's a rib here and a rib there you can find in the pages of human history. It's a a picture. It's a cartoon. You see, the focus for our blessing, the focus for your encouragement as a Christian today is not to ask, what are the three ribs in the mouth of the bear? The focus is what is clear and straightforward. So if you want the gist of the whole chapter, I will give it to you right now. It's in verse 17 and verse 18. The gist of the whole chapter, Daniel asked what it is. He asked an angel, verse 16, he approached one of those who stand there in heaven. He asked him the truth. So here is the interpretation. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. 
whatever else you have to, you want to know about this chapter, get this very straight. God rules over history. We have no excuse for saying, I don't know what this vision means. Here's what the vision means. It's right here. Four great beasts, four kings, four kingdoms. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and they will possess it. They'll have it forever. Now, notice the angel does not say the first beast is this empire. The second beast is this empire. The third beast is this nation. The fourth beast is that nation. That should tell you that's not the main point. Now, I, I spoke about this when we talked about Daniel chapter, set, but chapter 2. I, I told you that, you know, in my view, I think you can link, you know, Babylon and, and media Persia and Greece and to some degree Rome with 1, 2, 3, and 4, but not entirely Rome with the last one. We'll get there in due course. So if you want to press me and say, Pastor John, what are these kingdoms? That's what I would go with. But I don't think that the purpose of the text is to tell us you need to know the kingdom, otherwise you won't actually benefit. In fact, part of the purpose of this whole chapter is to tell us that the present evil age until the final day appears will be a bestial age, an animalistic age. Isn't that why the powers of today, the superpowers of today, what, what do they still show? They still show animals. The Russian bear. The Russian bear is still fighting over in Ukraine. The Chinese dragon, still roaring. The American eagle, still flapping around. Animals, beast. You see, like Revelation, Daniel is a picture book. It's a cartoon book. You should smell and hear and see these beasts. You are meant to be overwhelmed like Daniel was by these beasts. It is what Chesterton wrote. He says this, stand up and keep your childish, read all the pedants, creeds and strictures, but don't believe in anything that can't be told in colored pictures. That is, the Bible has cartoons. You know, the Bible is a cartoon book. Here it is. This is why the visual, if you look at the, at the wording, if you look at the vision, you'll notice that visual verbs are common. Verse 2, I saw. Verse 7, I saw. Verse 4, I watched. Verse 9, I watched. Verse 6, I looked. Verse 13, I was watching. Verse 21, I was watching. Daniel is seeing the movie, the film being played over and over again, and it's, it's assaulting his mind. Therefore, this section of God's word is not for you to get down and parse the little nitty details. It rather is to impress upon you, here are the nations of man. Here are the kingdoms of the world. And you need to be realistic about that. You need to realize that all the political cut and thrust, all the uh, political issues of our day, they're scary. They're bestial. You need to be realistic. You need to have, we ought to have our doctrine of total depravity incorporated into our politics. If you want to know the first application, we need to see that no matter who is in charge, no matter the leadership or the government or whatever, beast, devouring, attacking, Daniel is not saying there's some greater arc of progress that will eventually make all things better. 
Rather, Daniel takes that classic statement of the historian Barbara Tuckman. She wrote at the end of her book on the American Revolution, revolutions produce other men, not new men. Other men, not new men. There's going to be a new, there's going to be a new president, at least in the next year, the next five years down the road. Other man in the office. After that, somebody else, somebody else. He goes on and on and on. Other men, not new men. That is human authority and power. But the real crux of this chapter is not the four beast. It is verse 9 through verse 14. Let's look there. You would expect Daniel to kind of go on about this beast after the first eight verses, these four beasts, this fourth really scary beast. But suddenly, verse 9, I looked. I looked and I saw something. He sees two scenes. He sees first, in heaven, thrones are placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. We have a picture, a heavenly picture of the Ancient of Days. Now you think of somebody called the Ancient of Days. If anybody, if your grandkids come to you and say, you know, Grandpa, you're looking like you're the Ancient of Days, you might think it's not a great thing. But this is not some senile old guy with a white beard up in heaven, not really knowing what's up. No, the Ancient of Days is a glorious name. The Ancient of Days is a beautiful name. The Ancient of Days describes a God who is everlasting over history. Each little empire, each little beast, they have their time. They have their half a time. They have their times. They have their day. God is the ancient of days. That means he's from forever to forever. And second, notice what the ancient of days is doing. He takes his seat. He's sitting down. What are the beasts doing? They're fighting in the water. They're playing in the kiddie pool. They're battling and they're growling and they're attacking and they're devouring. What is God doing? He's sitting down. How instructive is that for us? What are, what are people in Congress doing? What are the nations doing today? They're having their debates. They're, having their, they're, they're firing off some sally. They're making some speech. They're coming together and they're doing all sorts of activity. Hectic, constant, always. God sits on the throne. God is stable. God is firm. God is forever. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. But God is a way of everlasting power. Notice also that his clothing is white as snow. Verse 9, the hair of his head like pure wool. That means white as snow. It's not his age. It shows his righteousness. He has never compromised his righteous dealings in dealing with humans. He has never, well, he has never had to become black and dark and corrupt. He's not a judge who's corruptible. He is white and pure. Not like the politicians of our day. Hmm? He's never taken by surprise. He's never in a panic. Ultimate authority is not in Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or America or wherever. It is in God's hands. It's what Isaiah says, isn't it? 
you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because God's at perfect peace. We see here that God is sane. The world is insane. The world has lost its marbles. God is sane. The world is caught up in feverish activity. God is stable. And yet we also see here that there is fury. The wheels are burning fire. His throne is fiery flame. A river of fire is coming out. What does that mean? It means God is present. Fire is not just about burning things up. Fire in Scripture signals God's presence. That's why at Pentecost there are tongues of fire. That's why in the wilderness they are led at night by a pillar of fire. God is with them, and yet it's God who is judging. The very end of verse 10, the court sits in judgment. The books are opened. Daniel is saying, here is the supreme judge, the ancient of days. That's the first scene. The second scene is verse 13 and verse 14. The son of man comes in. The son of man has the kingdom. More precisely, verse 13, there comes one like a son of man to whom is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. One like a son of man who appears as a human. What do we make of this figure? We see in verse 13, he comes with the clouds of heaven. That's a phrase used 70 times in the Old Testament. And every other time it's used with re- when referring to a divine being. So I don't think this is the one exception. Coming with the clouds of heaven indicates that this figure is divine. And yet he is one like a son of man. He's also a king. Because to him is given a kingdom. Obviously, a king has a kingdom. Who is this? This, of course, is the true man. This is the true man, not the man become a beast. The four beasts are human. Humans become bestial. This is man become glorious. This is the true man. This is the one who can stand in the presence of the ancient of days who had a fire throne. This is the one who can stand in front of the myriad of myriad, the infinite number of angels. This is all that we are meant to be, but we have failed to be. And when you recall what Christ says before he's taken up in the clouds, he says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You know who this has to be. This is Jesus the Christ. He is the Son of Man. This title is used almost exclusively in the New Testament by Christ. And his is an everlasting dominion. It shall not be taken away. This is what Christ says when he's under oath by Caiaphas. He is asked, are you the Messiah? He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Here is the great question that you need to ask yourself from Daniel chapter 7. The great question is not who's the horn. I'll comment on that in a second. The great question is not who's the horn. What are the ten horns? Why are three horns taken down? That's not the great question you need to ask. The great question is, do I have this vision of God? Do I have this vision of God? Do I have this vision of his throne? Do I see God as the ancient of days? Do I glory in the Son of Man? Because if you have this vision of heaven, whatever happens on earth won't shake you. If you have this vision of an unshakable throne, whatever happens on earth will not shake you. 
You will have a perspective on life that's from above, not from below. Everybody has a perspective on history from below. That's what Marx had. That's what Nietzsche has. That's what capitalists have. That's what environmentalists have. It's all about below history. That's what uh, the industrial. That's what everybody has. Everybody has a, a, a school and a theme and a thought about the life and where it's going, but only, only the church, only Christ gives us above history. Only Christ gives us history from above. That's the key. That's the key. And yet I do need to comment at least a little bit to give you guidance on what is the, the beast? What is this horn, this fourth beast? You notice Daniel asked the question, verse 19. He says, tell me the truth about this fourth beast. It's different than all the rest about the ten horns and that other horn. And here's the angel's answer beginning in verse 23. You'll notice he does not say the horn is Rome. The horn is the papacy, which is what the early, the early Protestants thought. Calvin thought it was Rome. They had disagreements. The angel does not say the ten horns are the ten emperors from Nero to somebody else. He simply says, verse 24, as the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. Another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Notice he does not say a year, two years, and half a year. In contrast to our dispensationalist brothers, he says a time, a times, and half a time. That's it. He doesn't define it as a, a quantity. But more significantly, this little horn, verse 25, will blaspheme God. He will torture and wear out and squeeze the saints of God. He will try to change the times and the law. That means he will try to change the way the world works. He will try to make it into a bestial thing, a demonic thing. So the question, who is this guy and who are the ten horns? It's very easy to know who the ten horns are. They're just ten kings. I don't know who they are. They're like the ten toes on the statue in chapter 2. In fact, I think they refer to the same thing. Ten toes, ten horns. That's it. There's, there's not a figure you can point to and say, ah, oh, a list of ten. But who is the little horn? If this beast could represent Rome, it's possible. But I think the issue with that interpretation is that if you turn to Revelation 13, John writes of another beast, a beast that rises from the sea like these beasts, a beast that has ten horns like this one, a beast energized by Satan, a beast that utters blasphemous words, a beast that persecutes the saints, not the Israelite saints, but a saint, the saints from every tribe and nation and tongue. And when you put together Daniel 7 with Revelation 13 in that way, you begin to realize this is not simply Rome. Rather, rather, there are continual expressions of the little horn that emerged throughout history. And it is very possible. And I present this simply as my, my preferred interpretation. I'm not going to ask you to hold to it, but I do present it to you. I think it is possible that this little horn refers to the, the final great king at the end of the ages against Christ. 
And though it may be an antichrist figure, that does not mean that you cannot have many antichrists throughout time and space, like the Pope. But the challenge, friends, is as I just press again with you, the challenge is not for us to work out who is the little horn. The challenge is for us to see heaven itself. The challenge is not for us to work out the details of the cartoon. The challenge is for us to remember the one who will give the last and decisive judgment. That's why in verse 27, we have the key to interpreting in one sense, the whole chapter, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. This is a picture of the history of the Christian church. The character of the beast, the character of Satan reaches its apex in the tiny horn. The kingdom of God reaches its greater apex in the destruction of Antichrist. And the kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints. Yes. Yes, Satan will attack God's people. Yes, Satan will attack his bride, Christ's bride. Yes, but the point of the vision is that God has limited the beast attack. God has time limited how long Satan will have to sift the church. And there will be a day when the everlasting kingdom, when all dominions shall be given to the Son of Man and his saints shall serve and obey this Jesus Christ. Is that your hope? You see, our great hope is God's people, if not in world, worldly power. Our aim is not to build the kingdoms of this world, but to see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns now. All kingdoms that stand against him have been judged in the courtroom of the Ancient of Days. The court is in judgment. The books are opened. They will fall. Even the little horn, whoever you think it is, cannot overthrow his rule. And so this is the great question that must be pressed on us. If God is judge, are you ready to see him? Are you ready to go into the courtroom? Are you ready to have your book of life opened up Its contents put on public display with all of your jealousy and anger and lust and pride and self-centeredness. On that day of judgment, your hope must not be in yourself. It must not even be in whether you think you have the right interpretation on this text. Your hope must be that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has taken the judgment. He has taken the judgment we deserve. He has been bruised for our transgressions. He has been mauled by the great beast for our iniquity. He has faced the beast in all its fearsomeness, in all the rib-chewing, disgusting destructiveness. And unlike the experience of the church, unlike your experience, the time of his trial on the cross was not cut short. He felt the full measure of the fury of the wrath of God. He felt the fire of flame from the ancient of days. He felt six hours distilled exquisite agony. He bore it all. And therefore, here is your hope, Christian. Your hope, again, I mentioned this, your hope is not in the details of this text. 
Your hope, rather, is in the fact that whether death or life, angels or monsters, dictators or demons, whatever faces you in this life, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If God, the Ancient of Days, is your judge, if the Son of Man is your Savior, the horn and the beast, they can do their worst. Because after they do their worst, God will welcome you into his very best. That's why to die is gain for the Christian. Do you believe that? Do you know there's a day coming when the beast will be gone, the monster on the bed will be destroyed? Only the saints will remain. That's the end of seven. Praise be to our God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, ancient of days. And come and bow before you. We ask that you would reveal to us not the specifics of Daniel 7, but reveal to us the glory of the Son of Man, the one who has faced down all the beast, all the evil one, all his power, all his seduction, all his force, all his temptation. And who has emerged victorious. We pray, Father, that now you would set aside these ordinary tokens this bread, this wine, that we might taste and see that now the Son of Man reigns, that his kingdom is forever. May we taste right now just a little appetizer of that kingdom that you may establish it more deeply in us this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We come to the table of the Lord. We're told by the great poet George Herbert, he writes this. He says, love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. This is the love of Christ on display. For you. This is the love. This is how far the Son of Man has gone for you. This is how deep he has gone. He has given his own blood. He has given his own life. That's why it's a privilege that I have as a minister of Christ to invite all who are right with God, all who are right with his church to come to the Lord's table. And if you receive Christ, you're resting upon him alone for salvation as he's offered you in the gospel. If you're a baptized, professing member in good standing in a church that proclaims that gospel, if you seek 